This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. An important development on Canada's healthcare system got a bit lost in all of the noise around the John Tory scandal. Early in the week, the premiers and territorial leaders agreed to a new healthcare funding deal with the Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa. The additional $46 billion offered comes with conditions, but will these conditions provide for desirable outcomes? One of the key aspects is a requirement to share data. But members of the medical record panel on Fightback say healthcare will only be improved if it is the right data. Dr. Sohail Gandhi is a family physician and a past president of the Ontario Medical Association. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And Dr. Amal Verma is a staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital. Basically, the federal government has made health data and modernizing the digital tools in our healthcare system as one of the four major priorities for this new round of federal funding out to the provinces. And I was really excited to see that. And, and why was I excited to see that? I was excited to see that because ultimately in healthcare, we influence health by making decisions and better data leads to better decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this investment and this focus on data can really help us modernize the care we're delivering and uh, improve outcomes for patients. And how so, uh, Dr. Moore, are we going to be able to see what works and what doesn't work? Do we not know now? Well, I think that the amount of data we generate within the healthcare system uh, is enormous. And I, I think what's been sort of transformational in the past 10 years is the realization that just like human resources and money are important for healthcare, data is actually a very valuable resource that can be used to improve healthcare, make it more efficient, uh, conduct research to define better treatments. And I think it's generally agreed that we need a national strategy around health data to really move this field forward. The other thing I would say is that It's not that the provinces don't agree with this. I think they do. Everyone in the system agrees that we need better data. I think it's just that to do this nationally rather than provincially just makes more sense. Dr. Gandhi. Yeah, so, you know, I'm glad to see that this is a key priority. I think Canada is 20 years behind the curve, frankly. Like, we are far behind other countries in the world when it comes to this kind of stuff. I will say that, honestly, I was disappointed when I saw the proposal. Not not that I'm disappointed in the idea that data should be a key priority, but in the lack of specifics that are in there. I mean, if you read through this, all it really amounts to is saying, well, we'll make data a priority, and we're going to appoint these committees, and we're going to have these bilateral agreements with different provinces, so now you'll have 10 separate agreements on data. Um, and I don't see the kind of, of vision for a national strategy that we need to have uh, in place to effectively 
manage how we deal with healthcare data, how we use it to improve healthcare for the lives of ordinary Canadians, you know, how we use it so my patients can get better care. I, I don't see that vision or that, that boldness there. And that part I am concerned about. What about uh, uh, the sticks in this? One of the criticisms that I have heard, Dr. Verma, is that there, it doesn't look like there are big consequences. It doesn't look like there's stuff in there that would uh, force a province to give back money. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's one of the major questions that remains is how much of the funding is at risk? Now, there was one line towards the end of the federal statement on this that suggested that if provinces uh, uh, don't play ball with the need for data or in general with these priorities, then a certain proportion of the funding that is being allocated, maybe up to 5% or so in this renewal of the, of the health transfer, uh, could be withheld. I think we'll see, and I think exactly to Dr. Gandhi's point, that we really do need to see some real teeth and, and specificity in the commitment around health data. And really importantly, to the point that, you know, we're now in the position of having the federal government provinces negotiate bilaterally. Um, the key point, which Dr. Moore highlighted at the beginning, is that we will only get so far as everyone agrees to a certain common set of standards, a certain common set of measures, because at the end of the day, we need to assure that Canadians from coast to coast are receiving the same high-quality access to care and high-quality outcomes from care. And if everyone defines their data differently or formats it differently, then we're not going to be able to do that. And importantly, you won't be able to port your data from one province to the other and have access to that You know, if you're trying to receive care in different provinces. And so I think pan-Canadian cooperation is fundamentally important. And to your point, I hope that they do put some sticks behind it it seems like that's at least on the table, at least at the outset of these negotiations. Dr. Amal Verma, staff physician in general internal medicine at St. Michael's Hospital. Dr. Sohail Gandhi, a family physician and a past president of the Ontario Medical Association. And Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Well, never mind the John Tory story. There has been a much larger drama playing out in the sky involving our security. The Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down earlier this month and three other unidentified flying objects also shot down. And yes, there are people who seriously wonder if this was the start of an alien invasion. While the origins of the three most recent objects are apparently unknown, but the latest thinking is they are or were benign. Libby was joined by two experts to talk about what's going on. Dr. Kim Richard Nozzle is Professor Emeritus at the Department of Political Studies and Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. And Larry Haas is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. We're taking, I think rightfully, the uh, initial balloon, the Chinese balloon, very seriously, had surveillance, communications, equipment on it. It was over the U.S. mainland uh, and at a relatively low level for such spyware, about 60,000 feet. Uh, But the other three, it looks like, have no connection. And the latest thinking thinking is that they were actually commercial. I think listeners need to keep in mind that there are many things up in the atmosphere, some put up by government, some put up by businesses, some put up by 
individuals. So it looks like these were three commercially related entities of some kind, not put up by a government, but we still don't know for sure. Uh, Dr. Nassau, would would you concur? Do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, essentially, I think that uh, that Larry has it exactly right, that uh, uh, we still don't absolutely know what these other three things were. They clearly were not um, uh, Chinese spy balloons like the first first one. Um, But uh, until someone comes forward uh, to report uh, uh, their property blown out of the sky by a Sidewinder missile, um, we actually, I don't think, will really know. I think we might hear from their lawyers. Well, we'll see. But we also may find out when we finally are able to track down uh, the contents uh, of those three entities, which are obviously somewhere in the seas. I mean, our focus is now on the Chinese balloon because it was a question of national security. But my understanding is that the remnants of the other three entities are accessible. We just haven't gotten to them yet. Uh, so we we will probably be able to figure it out ourselves uh, if no one comes forward. And with regard to legal matters, I really am not a lawyer and have nothing to say about that. Why uh, were we not aware of these things before? I gather there's something about the settings on radar and they were flying too low uh, to be noticed. Is that right? Essentially, as, as I understand it, uh, uh, the uh, the radar settings for uh, for NORAD um, are as essentially designed uh, to catch things that are moving uh, exceedingly fast, like enemy aircraft or the aircraft of other countries, uh, rather than uh, the uh, the either the the spy balloon, which, uh, as Larry said, was traveling at around sixty thousand feet, which is way above um, uh, commercial aircraft, um, but the others were traveling. Um, at uh, uh, at uh, twenty thirty thousand feet, which is absolutely um, the uh, uh, the commercial air, uh, area, and so it's a matter of of uh, opening up um, the uh, uh, the radar parameters to catch other things. Where does this leave uh, both U.S. and Canada, or the West's relations with China? Uh, I think it's one of those things where there's going to be a lot of bluster uh, in the short term. The Chinese are uh, are threatening unspecified retaliation against U.S. entities of some kind. I think this is going to play out. And then I think we're going to get back to a more of a normal stasis with clarity that these are two adversaries that are competing for influence all over the world, very big stakes, but our economies are very intertwined. We have other intertwined interests. And to the extent that we can cooperate with one another on things, we will do the best we can to do that. But one of the things that also needs to be added, however, is that uh, part of the, the problem with the American response is uh, that uh, the spy balloon got heavily politicized uh, in American politics. Yeah. And so from, from that point of view, it seems to me that uh, that's going to complicate the relationship between the United States and China on this particular issue. 
Libby's conversation on Wednesday with Dr. Kim Richard Nozzle at Queen's University and Larry Haas, Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, our municipal experts, the Tune Into the Town panel, weigh in on the Tory story. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Thursday marked the denouement of a week-long drama that no one saw coming. And it was all everyone was talking about in the city. John Tory's admission of a relationship with a former staff member and his decision to resign. Tory's shocking news was followed by a flurry of activity from people who wanted him to stay, as well as a push from progressive councillors to try to make changes to John Tory's first and last budget as a strong mayor. And we heard from leaders in other levels of government. Deputy PM and Finance Minister Christian Freeland said he had to go. Premier Doug Ford said he should stay. Joining Libby on Thursday with their reactions, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO, who had a very interesting story to tell. Well, I can say I was not entirely surprised only because I had seen him with this woman at a party in December, this woman that he is uh, accused of having the affair with, that he has admitted to having the affair with. And um, I thought that it was his daughter at the time because she's significantly younger. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I had asked, uh, I was like, how do you two know each other? And she said, oh. she said, oh, uh, we used to work together. And I was like, oh, so you're in politics. And she's like, well, I used to work at City Hall and now I work in sports. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Weird for him to have like... A young lady friend, but like when I heard that there had been an affair, it kind of clicked, and I was like, "Oh, that must have been what's going on." And then, sure enough, I reverse Google search, and I'm like, "That was the lady." Um, but, but I mean, just it's out of character to me. It's very out of character for for Mayor Tory to. That is kind of interesting because uh, appearing in public with somebody is a certain level of things. So who knows? Right, and and I I swore I was like, no, that's got to be his daughter. She's so much younger than him. And my friends were like, no, they don't seem like they're acting like father and daughter. And yeah, oh, no, and it caused a lot of stir, obviously. A little bit. My friends and I kind of just like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But I did not for a second expect that he was having, um, you know, perhaps an affair with with this young woman. But, um, you know, it, it turns out so that he, he was. And when the news broke, I was like, OK, now I get it. Karen, I was also surprised amid all the speculation that the budget thing m- might have taken, you know, a month, but it, it was wrapped up in a day. Uh, did did that surprise you at all? And and uh, again, we were just saying uh, about things that may have been out of character for him. And it's it's asking for these strong mayor powers and not telling us in the middle of an election. Yeah, there was a lot of things that were out of character, really. And um, I was looking at the budget process to see whether or not John used his veto powers to veto any motions that were moved. Because if he had, that would have been, for me, a demonstration that he intended on staying. And he did not. But he didn't. He allowed the budget to pass, and uh, he understood that council is now in control of the budget. And when that happened, then that was really, for me, a display that he was going to step down. 
David, uh, we were expecting uh, a very long list of candidates, and uh, we, uh, uh, we've we talked to quite a number of them this week. Some of them are being really coy, and I'm assuming that they're trying to see if they can get their ducks in a row. So, uh, first of all, do you think it has to be somebody with experience on council or uh, somebody from the outside? Do you think that would work? Yeah, I don't think in the whole, in the long history of uh, of uh, mayoral elections in 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 in, 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 uh, in Toronto that anyone has has ever won from outside council. There may be one, but I I don't recall one. Certainly not at any time I can remember. Well, John, Tory. There's, a good, there's, a, there's a good reason for that, and that that is it's just a much more complicated culture at City Hall than people know. And you need to understand it better. People understand that. And voters understand that. So that's why I don't think you'll find anybody coming from the outside, unless it was someone who was there before uh, and, and now serves at some other level. Uh, but I uh, I think not. I think you're, fine. you're going to find that the, the candidates that are winnable are mostly those who are coming from council. Although I, I gather Gil Penalosa is also running. But generally speaking, I think you'll find the candidates that are going to be viable are going to be able to start from council. Karen, what do you think this does to the right-left dynamics on council? I don't know that we have a right-left dynamic on council anymore. You know, I think we have various, um, you know, there's certainly politics and there's some partisan, but really it's more pragmatic. You know, we're seeing a, a broader section of councillors just being pragmatic and trying to respond to the issues of the day and don't fit into the neatly, the neat right-left label. You know, like I look to Brad Bradford. He's not necessarily a right-wing councillor or a left-wing councillor. He's just a pragmatic councillor. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor at Blog TO. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Canadian International Auto Show is underway after a three-year absence. Before the pandemic, it was an annual ritual that started back in 1974. But it is back much smaller, with major automakers like Ford, Honda, and BMW taking a pass. In addition to the usual fancy concept cars, highlights include a vehicle made out of Lego and a chance to actually drive an electric vehicle. Jason Campbell is general manager of the Canadian International Auto Show. He joined Libby on Thursday. I think we've we've had to reimagine ourselves. Uh, you know, the theme of this year's show is mobility reimagined. And there has been challenges with the auto sector. I mean, the entire world has had major uh, issues with product supply, and there are some brands which have had bigger challenges than others. And so, the the concept. I had some discussions with some brands earlier in the summer, and said, "Look, I've got two year waiting list for product. You know, I just can't come and offer some product that I can't deliver for some time." But we've got the vast majority of brands participating. During the pandemic, uh, which is actually not entirely over, there were big shortages mm. of vehicles, yeah. uh, shortages of chips. Now, yeah. um, is that over? Like we've been hearing maybe that's over. It's easier to get a car. The price of used cars is coming down. Um, yeah. What's the situation it's with improving. that? It's improving. It's not over, of course. Every manufacturer still faces uh, production challenges. 
Uh, some are affected more than others, and uh, you know depends on where the products are assembled, and uh, you know in terms of the the demands for the products. And uh, it, overall, the the industry is improving. I think the general industry outlook is for by usually summer or or fall of 2023 to be back closer to normal. But uh, but it has had a big impact on all, all manufacturers. And the wait for cars has been difficult for many consumers. And so there has been long wait times. And I think that's what's attracting a lot of people to come down to the show because many of the brands that have customers on, on wait list are having those cars available to see here at the auto show in one place. It's very hard to find the new EV products in dealerships, for example. But, um, but they're here. They're here at the show and you can even drive them. Yet some of the brands are hosting their own exclusive test drive programs for their consumers in the morning times uh, at some days during the show. And so I think that we're going to find uh, it's a very full show. I think we're going to find a, a really interested crowd, and I don't think anybody will, will find anything wanting or missing from the show. In fact, I think it's one of our best shows we've put on in recent years. Do you think that uh, the nature of trade shows like this is changing altogether, or do you see this as a temporary thing as the industry recovers? I, I think it's temporary. I mean, I think every business has to evolve, and trade shows, this, this is a consumer show, but it, it, it also has to evolve, all consumer shows do, and we've seen more and more consumer shows becoming far more interactive, and so there's a number of interactive elements of the show. The, the Camp Jeep exhibit is one. It's the first time that Jeep has brought this kind of rugged terrain, outdoor, usually outdoor terrain activity uh, to Canada, and it's uh, it's been a huge hit here so far on Media Day. Uh, the EV test track is one that I think is going to be extremely popular, and it's going to be active all all show long. And we also have a micromobility test track in the North Building where people that want to try out electric bicycles or there's a really unique new um, EV vehicle, which Frank Stronach has developed called the Sarat. A little three-wheeled uh, micro-mobility vehicle that's also available to try. I think all shows are going to need to evolve and become a little bit different. But you know, we also need to put on a show, and we've we've got the Hot Wheels have a big demonstration celebrating our 50th year. Lego is a full-size Lego car; it's a great family experience, and we've added some new features as well. For instance, the first time we're doing a, a dedicated display for assisted mobility vehicles, so folks in wheelchairs. There's a Six uh, vehicle display. They're, all vehicles are accessible by uh, by wheelchair. It's provided by um, Universal Motion, a big supplier of those products here in Ontario. And uh, that, to me, is something that is, is a personal thing. That my parents, uh, my mother, had to have a leg amputated, so she's in a wheelchair now. In the Sorry to hear that. And we had to take over one of these vehicles ourselves, and it really brought me, you know, the, re- the realization that the difference that this kind of a vehicle could make in someone's life and uh, the mobility that it provides. And, I think it's something that uh, has been very well received by the folks who have been on the show floor today. Jason Campbell, General Manager of the Canadian International Auto Show. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Everyone was calling in about John Tory, including Jessica in Toronto. So I just want to say that this is, it's just sad that this has become a major distraction uh, in regards to important issues at City Hall. Um, one of the things I'm concerned about is the change in TTC service, and yet we're still paying an additional 10 cents for our fare. And then in addition to that, we have to deal with safety concerns on transit, which is definitely at top of mind. Joy and Markham also phoned about John Tory. My opinion is that he should stay. He's a good man. He made a mistake. A lot of men out there and in his position are doing the same thing, but he came forward and he apologized. And I lift my hat to him. And I think he should stay because uh, the country, we need him. And for him to back off, we're going to be in a total mess politically and otherwise. Sarah in Pelham joined the conversation on John Tory. I'm not a resident of Toronto, but I've been following this, and I thought because Mr. Tory has such a high percentage of people that want him to stay, would he consider putting his name on the ballot with the other candidates? And if he gets elected, he stays as mayor. Pat in Toronto weighed in on the story of the week as well. As you know, I am a former counselor in a municipality. I'm also a CPA. And the the amount of information and the lack of knowledge of many of the counselors as far as financial aspects, I think it's very important for the man to stay to get through this budget. Otherwise, we're just going to have a mess on our hands. That That's a simple answer. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Daryl in Toronto, who phoned about the John Tory story and what he would like to see happen. I don't think he should resign. Uh Especially, you know, this is 2023, not 1923. This cost of an election. He made a commitment he should fulfill it after everything Rob Ford put us through. This is nothing. I also don't believe that a 31-year-old woman is necessarily a victim. I agree with that. Now, there's also the idea you mentioned earlier that the strong mayor powers are not transferable. That makes it totally abhorrent. We need a strong mayor to push back against the province, not to be their puppet to do it. I also am curious as to who broke the story to the star, who let this out. And uh, as you mentioned also earlier, Libby, that we are a creature of the province. And do we really want to see Michael Ford as the next mayor of the city, whether it's by appointment or by election with the conservative machine behind him? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me for a special live Family Day Fightback tomorrow between noon and one. And then again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. 
Executive Producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.